Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us this season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Damney, explore the hidden life of water. We bring you conversations about the relationship between water and energy, manufacturing and Indiana's economy, treatment at the end of the line, and the impact of pollution on our communities. Today, the subject is wastewater. Do you know where the water goes when you send it down the drain? In this episode, we talk with Tara Washington with the Carmel Wastewater Utility and Arizona Fox with Biomonitor, a water quality laboratory in Indianapolis. Find out who's on the other end of the pipe and learn about the critical role they play in protecting our water and our health. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Arizona Fox, a water quality scientist with Biomonitor, an Indianapolis-based lab working on toxicity and diagnostic studies. Devin talks with Arizona about Biomonitor's approach to testing wastewater, the types of issues they encounter, and how the system is built to respond. A quick note, Taz wasn't able to be with us for this interview, so you will only hear Devin talking with Arizona. Arizona Fox, I'm a water quality scientist at Biomonitor. Can you briefly explain what Biomonitor does? Yeah, so we're an aquatic toxicity laboratory, and our bread and butter really is whole effluent toxicity testing. Um, That's a big word, but basically it means when you discharge water into a river, we will test it and make sure that it's safe for aquatic life. And how do you test to make sure it's safe? So we have several different species that we'll test against. Our most common ones are fathead minnows, which are a small little fish, and we'll monitor those for up to a week for growth. The other really common species we test against is Seriodaphnia dubia. Basically, it's just a little water flea, so kind of like a tiny crustacean. Uh, They have one eye and tiny antennas and um, reproduce at an alarming rate. Um, So we monitor them for up to a week for uh, reproduction. This episode, we're focused on wastewater and we're looking at things like wastewater treatment plants and industrial waste streams. Uh, You said that you test water to make sure that aquatic life can survive in it. What sorts of water or what sorts of locations are you testing? Yeah, so we're permitted through an NPDES permit. So only if you have an NPDES permit will you be required by the state to do our kind of testing. Basically, that includes fairly larger dischargers, so wastewater treatment plants, and some industries might be required to do our type of test as well. Do you mind explaining what an NPDES permit is? Yeah, so an NPDES permit Um, It stands for National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, and it's permitted under the Clean Water Act by the EPA. But here in Indiana, it's actually overseen by IDEM. So they're the ones who will write you your permit, and they're the ones you have to deal with if you mess up. And you don't have to name specific companies, but what sorts of industries might have this permit? Yeah, it really varies. Um, I know recently you've been talking about uh, food production, so there's definitely some of that, you know, your crafts, that kind of stuff. But also... uh, You know, if you're producing um, energy, a lot of the power plants might have one. Basically, that's it. So I'm going to guess that not every time you test water that it turns out great results. What sorts of pollutants might keep aquatic life from thriving? Oh, yeah. So there's all sorts of things. There's stuff that people are pretty well aware of, right? If your ammonia is really high, 
Um, that can be a problem for aquatic life. There's also stuff you don't think about. So if you get your dog treated for fleas and then you dump the extra flea down the drain, that'll wipe out your cereal because they're a water flea. So, you know, that's something you kind of have to keep in mind. This uh, water flea, is it something that's pretty critical to the ecology of a stream? Yeah, so water fleas are, you know, they're like sort of on the baseline, they're feeding off of the algae and other like detritus bacteria in the water. Um, and then they in turn are food for small fish. Um, it's really more thinking about them as a canary in the coal mine though. Water fleas are obviously important to the ecology, but it's really more important that we're getting a complete picture and water fleas are a really good organism that looks at reproduction, okay. right? Since they have that really quick reproduction, that can be like a good sign that like, oh, hey, reproduction in water fleas is knocked down. That's probably a problem. Okay, so it's more of like a, just like a baseline test. Yeah, yeah. What happens when you're testing one of these streams and you come up with a violation of some kind or, you know, some sort of toxin that's in the water? Under most NPDES permits, you have two chances. So you fail one and you're like, oh, maybe the problem was that somebody dumped their dog's flea and tick medicine down the drain you know, that's not gonna be there in another two weeks. Mm -hmm. So within two weeks, they test a second time. And if they fail both of those, then it triggers what's called a TRE, which is a toxicity reduction evaluation. Again, that's permitted through MPDES and it's overseen by IDEM, which is the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. And it's a very, very broad investigation where really all IDEM wants is that every 90 days, you're telling them what you've done to correct the action and you try to do an investigation, figure out what's causing the toxicity, and then the, the you know, usually it's a city wastewater treatment plant, will have to come up with a solution. Have you worked any particular cases or bodies of water that were really, I guess, concerning, for lack of a better word? Yeah, so it varies, right? Um, a lot of the times the problems that you think of is way bigger. You know, it'll be in a large wastewater treatment plant where they have like a ton of infrastructure to figure out the problem and they're hiring a lot of people. The things that sort of get into trickier situations if it's, is if it's a much smaller city and then they don't have the personnel to cover it or possibly um, there's a major industry in town that, you know, hires everybody and you have to think about that as well. Well, with that, do you feel like the way this process works with permits and testing is adequate to protect? Yeah, you know, I really do. Um, I've, like I said, I've been with Biomonitor for about four years um, and failures don't happen as often as you think. And when they do, everyone involved is very concerned. I've been very impressed with everything that I've seen. You know, everybody who works in wastewater treatment, I think, you know, they want safe rivers. They like to fish, they like everything else. So the TRE program can take up to three years. So you really have to balance the fact that, you know, if you need to expand your wastewater treatment plant, it's gonna take time to do that. It can be really challenging to figure out exactly what is causing the problem. So I think that it's a very good balance of, it's serious, we all know it's a problem, but we're realistic, it's gonna take some time and resources to figure it out. That's great, yeah, I feel like over the course of talking to people, I've been pleasantly surprised with how much even larger companies really care about water. Which, yeah. I mean, it makes sense, you know, we all need it, you know, and a lot of these companies, if the water isn't clean enough, they can't even run their business. So I've been encouraged and I'm glad to hear you echo that. What range of pollutants are you testing for? 
actually our case is very different. So obviously in an NPDES permit, um, a lot of cities, you know, if you know you have a big steel plant in town, you're gonna be required to test for a bunch of specific metals. But if that's not the case, you won't have to test for those chemicals. Uh, so our test is actually a catch-all, right? So you have to test for specific likely pollutants, but then our test is meant to capture, oh, we didn't think about certain things that might be in your water. And also maybe there's some sort of, you know, you're below your limit on ammonia and you're below your limit on some metal, but maybe the both of them is toxic to aquatic life when they're put together. And the goal of our test is to figure that out. So. As your water is entering the stream, we want to make sure that that's safe for aquatic life, that they can thrive and reproduce. I think our test really directly answers like the question that you want, like, is it safe for animals? Do you believe that the standards that we have are high enough to meet the swimmable and fishable goals of the Clean Water Act? Ooh, um, yes, where they're met, I think that's probably true. Yeah, you know, we definitely see not so much with part of our wet testing, because I think that's very black and white. You're either pass or fail. Um, I know that like some of our other work that we've done is like we've looked at PCBs and fish tissue and stuff like that. And it's hard to say whether it's a standards issue, you know, because PCBs definitely do exist in some fish communities. Uh, but I think where that's the case, people know about it and are concerned about it. I think maybe the bigger issue is that if the stream you live on is high in PCBs, how do you know that? Like, are we doing enough to get the word out there? So in your testing, how often would you say you do run across violations? Um, yeah, it's not uncommon. We test a lot of different wastewater treatment plants. You know, I think last year we did almost 150. And there were only three TREs that we assisted with. Um, so I would say that that's pretty good. and. Um, at least one of those got resolved in the same year, so. And and not all of those were like catastrophic, right? right? Typically, we don't see catastrophic things. Um, a lot of times, so there are different levels of um, failure that can happen. So you can fail acutely, which means your um, fish or your cereal die within 48 hours or 96 hours, and there's massive deaths. You can also fail chronically, which might just mean that your fish don't grow enough or your cereal don't reproduce enough. And that level of toxicity is much more subtle. And while it seems less detrimental to the water it's going to, um, it can be harder to resolve. Uh, why would it be harder to resolve? So one of the tests that we do when there is a NPDES violation, so we'll take effluent water from the wastewater treatment plant and we'll manipulate different types of samples in different ways. So maybe one will aerate, maybe one will expose to UV light, maybe one will filter stuff like that. Um, and then we'll see which of those treatments led to an improvement in survival or reproduction or whatever the deal was. If there was catastrophic failures, that test becomes very easy to determine. Right away you see like, oh, it got better with this one. So we know that at the wastewater treatment plant, they should do this to improve. But if the differences are more subtle, it can be more difficult to determine what the cause of the toxicity was. So Am I correct in thinking that it's because there's so much room for improvement if there's a bunch of death versus like if it's a, a little bit of a room improvement, it's hard to tell what is causing the yeah. improvement? So especially the second part of what you said, um, 
if the differences are very subtle, then maybe your wastewater treatment plant didn't know they had a problem, right? A lot of times if they have a failure, the treatment plant will call us right up and be like, oh yeah, we knew that was gonna be a problem. We've been trying to get like our microbes back up and we'll work on it. <laughs> and then that becomes a much easier conversation to have versus, oh, I thought everything was going great. Now what do we do? <laughs> Sorry, you just made me think of something. So you're testing these uh, discharge points to make sure that they don't have any violations. Is it possible that contaminants from a different source might contaminate someone's? Oh yeah, I mean, so we talk about E. coli all the time. That's a big thing that we're very concerned about in our streams and rivers. And all of that pretty much is coming from non-point source pollution. Um, so that's, you know, your dog pooping next to the river, that's runoff from farms or people camping, stuff like that. Do you do DNA sequencing? We do. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> That's... Um, so we actually have a partner lab um, called Jonah Ventures that does our DNA sequencing. You know, we provide a service where we will go out and collect those samples and we'll interpret the data for you. And can you just explain what DNA sequencing is? Yeah, so um, it's been kind of a big new thing for us recently um, in the last four years. We do eDNA sequencing for source tracking for E. coli. So basically, we'll take a sample out of the water, we'll run it for E. coli and environmental DNA at the same time. Typically, we'll just test for likely sources of E. coli. Um, so human, we're always going to hit the human. <laughs> also, farm animals, pigs, cows, sheep. A lot of times, and I think this is typically wishful thinking from the client, we'll also end up testing for some wildlife, um, like deer or coyote. Oh, we do usually test for dog as well. It makes sense. Anything that could be a source of E. coli, we'll test for and take a look at. Typically, it's been shocking. It's mostly human is what we usually see. We have this very cool graph that the, our partner lab, Jonah Ventures, shows all of the data that they've collected in the last year. So like thousands and thousands of data points. And you can see human is like 10 or 100 times the most common animal they test for. And the rates are off the charts too. Like we recently tested um, a county and we found that, you know, human DNA kind of everywhere was like over a thousand copies per hundred milliliters of DNA. Sometimes you'll get like a dog or like a cow, but those levels are like eight or 30. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly um, like one-to-one. -one. This is always kind of difficult to explain. So humans are sloughing off DNA constantly, right? You're like, as you go swimming, you'll see that. So actually one really cool sample that I took a couple weeks ago was at a swimming beach. And you could see like where people were swimming, we sampled away from them, but the wa water there had DNA in the 2000s versus, you know, if there aren't people actively swimming, it can be lower. So people are just leaving more DNA around than you realize. And DNA can survive on surfaces for a little bit longer than E. coli. E. coli is really only good outside of the body for about 24 hours. There's some evidence that it can be longer, but DNA can live on a surface for, you know, two weeks or, and still be viable, you know, but you'll still test positive for it. Um, so that does sort of skew the numbers a little bit, but since we're not finding DNA from any other source, you have to conclude that the E. coli is coming from humans. You sound pretty hopeful overall about where things are and, um, you know, the testing that we have. Uh, am I correct in thinking that? 
Yeah, I'm definitely uh, hopeful and I've been very pleasantly surprised with like how concerned everyone is about our freshwater here in Indiana. I have huge climate anxiety in general, um, but uh, I think in this little corner, what we're working on, I think there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. Next, Tara Washington is the plant manager for Carmel Wastewater. Tara discusses the often overlooked benefit that wastewater treatment provides to society. We also talk about how regulations and water quality impact utility rates and what the future holds for this critical industry. I am Tara Washington and I am the wastewater treatment plant manager at the city of Carmel and I'm also the president-elect for the Indiana Water Environment Association. Let's talk about that first part. Uh, what does it look like being the manager of wastewater? So we actually have um, three leads in wastewater. One of them is kind of responsible for the collection system or the conveyance of the wastewater. One of them is responsible for operations and maintenance of the plant. And then I'm over more of uh, compliance and laboratory and biosolids and administration. Why is wastewater operations important? Well, in the grand picture of things, what we do is we take in a biological hazard. We take in the waste that leaves your home. And out of it, we create clean water. We create biosolids, which is fertilizer for crops. And um, we create energy that can be reused. Wait, energy? How so? Every wastewater treatment plant is different, but many of them have anaerobic digesters. So with your wastewater treatment system, there's a um, water stream, if you will, that gets processed, but there's also a solid stream that gets processed. And with that solid stream, one of the steps is uh, digestion. That can be aerobic or anaerobic. And with your anaerobic digesters, it's a lot like a human stomach in that the sludge is food and it just kind of churns in this tank. Uh, mixes, it's an anaerobic situation where acid forms, gas forms, just like the human stomach. And with that gas, if you capture it, you can be used beneficially again. How clean is the effluent that comes out of a wastewater plant? Like, could I drink it? No, you shouldn't drink the effluent <laughs> any more than you would drink river water. Okay. Um, what I will say is that um, it is it is common for the effluent of a wastewater treatment plant to be cleaner than the stream that is receiving it. And what is the impact of that wastewater discharge on the river stream or the water that it's going into? So there's a huge impact. So there's um, obviously the environmental impact of the stream that you're receiving. So the way a wastewater plant is permitted is based on it's receiving waters. You know, is it, is it a creek? Is it a river? Is it a lake? Um, how is that water going to be used? Is there going to be swimming there? Is there going to be fishing there? Uh, will that stream be used downstream for a public drinking water supply? And based off of all those factors, um, you are assigned your permit, which assigns you your limitations. But it also has um, a much more dynamic effect on the watershed in that, um, for example, at Carmel, we uh, discharge the White River. So that then goes into the Wabash River, which flows into the Ohio River, which flows into the Mississippi River. And as we all know, you know, we've heard of this dead zone down in the Gulf of Mexico. So ultimately, what we do at the city of Carmel's wastewater treatment plant does, in fact, affect the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a very dynamic scope. You talked a little bit about how there is a treatment of solids. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what sorts of things are 
being taken out of the water that aren't just the obvious solids. Yeah, so, you know, of course, when everybody thinks of wastewater, they think of toilet water. But in fact, it's also your washers, um, your washing machines, dishwashers, uh, your showers, things of that nature. And we are taking out heavy inorganic materials. Um, we are also taking out fats, oils, and greases. Uh, we're removing pathogens. And all of this ends up as either a water stream or a solid stream. And if you do have the process, you can beneficially um, process these solids where it is directly applied to crops even. Are there contaminants that you're not able to remove? I'm thinking of things like PFAS, pharmaceuticals, microplastics, things like that. Yeah, and, and there are processes to remove those things. But it's important to understand that it's extremely expensive to move these things. So pharmaceuticals, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of conflicting studies on if that has a negative impact, um, immediate health impact on human beings. Um, I think more of the studies are showing that it has more of an environmental impact than it does on human health. Same thing with PFAS and PFOA. In those situations, it's more with the dilution of, of, of those trace elements in the water, it doesn't have that immediate negative impact. That being the case, uh, if you have a smaller receiving stream, it could have a much more substantial impact. And in that situation, there are processes that could take those things out of the water. It is just extremely expensive. And those are expenses that the ratepayers directly have to absorb. So how do you know at the Carmel wastewater operation if the streams you're discharging into are being affected? Like, do you go and monitor them? Yeah, so um, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, they, they monitor the streams. And again, based on the stream you're discharging to, they will sign you a permit specifically for that stream. But also, yeah, we uh, monitor the conditions upstream of the wastewater plant and downstream from the wastewater plant, in addition to all the effluent monitoring that we do in, in our laboratory, in our compliance laboratory. Earlier, I asked if you could drink effluent, and you told me no. Um, <laughs> as disappointing as that is, <laughs> I can accept it. But is there any other way to immediately reuse effluent or does it just have to go back into the waters? So that, that really depends on where you are. There are states that have land application programs for effluent, wastewater effluent. Um, I will say in Indiana, it's, it's kind of a gray area because when you, for example, like let's say you wanna use your effluent for your road medians or your golf courses, that actually falls under the land application office item. And it's a totally different office and a totally different um, rules and regulations than the water quality office. So it's kind of this gray area that IDEM hasn't necessarily nailed down yet. But there are states that are doing it. Can you define effluent for those who might not be familiar with that yeah, term? Yeah, sure. So um, in, your, in your receiving waters, there's point source discharges and there's non-point source discharges. A point source discharge is anything that comes from a pipe or an outfall. And those are permitted. And that is water that it has been cleaned before it gets to the receiving waters. Effluent is the term for the water that is 
point source discharged into the water, into the receiving stream. So that's not a term that's specifically used just for wastewater plants. That's for anybody who's putting stuff into the streams? Yeah, any permitted discharger. And that includes your industrial dischargers as well. They have their effluent that is then sent downstream to the wastewater plant. You were talking about how removing some contaminants can have a really high cost. Can you talk more about how costs and rates are affected by wastewater treatment methods? For example, uh, the state over the last 10 to 15 years, they have imposed phosphorus regulations on wastewater effluent. And with that, you know, you can remove the phosphorus biologically, which requires a lot of capital improvement costs. I mean, think millions of dollars here, right out of the gate. Or you can um, remove the phosphorus chemically, which over a long term, you know, that's, that's not as, it's not this immediate pain that the ratepayers face, but it is extremely expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to remove, to use these chemicals to remove the phosphorus from the system. Let's say that the city of Carmel um, was imposed with the chloride limit at about $28 million per every 1 million gallon of wastewater treated per day. It would cost the city of Carmel almost $400 million to install the RO system required to remove chlorides. And again, those that $400 million is something that would have to be picked up by the ratepayers. So the, the more limits you have on your effluent and the more, um, especially for things like trace pharmaceuticals and PFAS and PFOA, absolutely, it gets tremendously expensive. So in some ways, does having dirtier water with more contaminants mean more regulations and higher rates? Yes, but also it depends on the receiving waters. So if you're discharging to a creek, um, where you know there's not a lot of dilution and there's not a lot of natural cleaning taking place, then um, that'll affect that as well. A lot of people don't think about what happens when they flush a toilet. If we didn't have wastewater operation anymore, what would happen to our society? Yeah, so that's actually a huge struggle that our industry is facing right now. For example, you know, when 2020 happened, when, when COVID hit the fan and the whole world shut down, wastewater and water professionals did not. You know, we still had to show up to work every day and we had to show up at the site and we were not considered that tier one essential employee. So, um, for example, when the vaccinations rolled out, you know, we weren't in that first tier with, you know, police and firemen. We were we were in phase two B of the vaccination rollout, you know, and that's hard to imagine as a water professional, because especially amidst a pandemic, you know, I can't imagine anything more important than getting clean water out and making sure the sewage leaves the city. So that's an issue we face just because as an industry, as a whole, we haven't done a good job of promoting the careers. Um, you know, kids, they don't grow up dreaming to be, you know, to work at a wastewater plant, you know, but in reality, we're scientists and engineers and we're welders and we're mechanics. And if we can just relay that message, they can understand that it takes all these professions to work together to do something that, that is probably the most important thing to our planet and to human health, which is clean water. I think the fact that wastewater management was not considered an essential worker is just the perfect depiction of how people just tend to take water for granted. Yeah. Like, you know, you turn the tap on, it's there, you flush the toilet and it's gone. Yeah. And yet in probably one of the most dire times of human history, we still don't understand that. Yeah. I, that I had no idea. It's like that with a lot of utility workers. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's underground. You don't see it. You don't think about it. Can you talk a little bit about how wastewater fits within the larger ecosystem, how it can impact base flow during dry periods? So again, with your, your point source discharges, those are your permitted discharges that come from either a pipe or an outfall. And since they're permitted, it's, it's a clean water discharge, okay? And then you have your non-point source discharges. Those are not permitted, so they're not cleaned. Your non-point source discharges are things from, um, you know, think of farmland or stormwater runoff. The way the, the water basin or the water supply works is your intakes are usually upstream. And then your returns or your, your, your discharges are usually downstream. Well, in the driest parts of the year, um, that, that treated wastewater discharge into the stream is, is the second largest contributor of that stream other than the natural base flow. So in essence, um, in, in the drier months or in drought months, if, if, if it weren't for you know, Hamilton County dischargers like Noblesville and Fishers and Carmel discharging clean water into the White River, then Indianapolis does not have the supply that they need for their population and for their drinking water. That's really interesting. I think a lot of times, at least I think of our water system as kind of like a city puts water into the river and then they take water out of that river and then it goes in a little circle. But it's so much bigger. Like I know with Carmel, if I'm remembering correctly, I think most of your drinking water comes from groundwater. Correct. Not from the White River. Correct. So the groundwater is being taken out and drank and then discharged into the White River, which goes to somebody else and becomes drinking water for other people. Sure. Just like people upstream from us contribute to our groundwater and our surface waters. So it's just a much bigger circle yeah. than you might think at first. Yeah. As populations grow and you know humanity gets bigger, how will wastewater operations adapt to meet those demands? The most common answer is they have to get bigger. You know, the tanks have to get larger, they have to build more tanks, things like that to increase capacity. But there are advances um, in science where, um, you know, they're making things like plastic media that will um, think of of a a spider web of plastic where it allows all that, um, those microorganisms I was talking about, where it allows them to grow in that plastic media and therefore be much more numerous and be able to more effectively treat the waste. There are advances in that, but um, the most common answer is just bigger tanks, more tanks. Trying to understand the value of water means understanding how vital it is to our daily lives, and wastewater plays an essential, if unglamorous, part. Coming up on the final episode in this season of The Collective Tap, we discuss the impacts of pollution on our communities and what is being done to address chronic issues. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org, produced in partnership with Absorb.